Uh, because I am a pastor, and because I also happen to live really close by, about two blocks from the church, uh, when the intruder alarm goes off during the week, who gets the call in the middle of the night? Me, this guy. And so what they'll do is they'll call me, and then they'll tell me where on campus, via our motion sensors and video cameras, where on campus a break-in is occurring or an intrusion is occurring. And then they'll ask me if I want the police to be sent. And then I have to come down here and meet them in the middle of the night because the police, don't want, you don't want them to kick down our doors and windows. So I have to unlock the campus and, uh, and handle that with them. And so uh, there was a season in our church a few years ago where we were getting break-ins on a weekly basis. And uh, by the time uh, we would arrive, usually it's too late. The thieves and the church equipment are long gone. But there was this one time that I got the call, came in at 3 a.m. I was here before the police, and I was on the phone with the alarm company. And the alarm company said, uh, the video is showing that there is lights on and movement in my office, in my office. In other words, that the thieves were still there while I was there. And so I grabbed my baseball bat from my car, and, but the question is, what is the biblical way to respond to things like that? Now, we talked about this last time, for those of you who don't remember, that yes, Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. And so we can love our enemies, bless our enemies, forgive our enemies, but the gospel does not ignore sin. It calls it what it is. Now, you and I, we do not repay evil for evil. Right? We are not cruel and unkind, but we do stop evil and we prevent it from causing harm, especially to other people. And so we talked about that last time, but what does that actually look like? If you have the Bible, you want to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 4. We are in this wonderful series called Restore, where we're learning about how we experience restoration in our lives by returning to God to rebuild what is broken. And that when God does this, he doesn't simply replace uh, rickety old broken down parts, but when God builds, he builds something new, something better. And that's exactly the picture of the gospel and what Jesus does when he comes and restores. So in chapters one through three, you may remember that God gave Nehemiah this conviction in his heart for the suffering city and people in need of a savior. And so with prayer and planning and preparation, he moves now from aspiration to implementation. He casts this vision that moves the people of God from a crowd to a team for working on and rebuilding the physical and spiritual walls of the city of Jerusalem, uh, of their families and of their community together to the glory of God and the good of all. And along the way, he met these critics who move now. They also are on the move, but they move from distraction to aggression against the people of God. And so last time you might remember that uh, we learned that we are to respond to threats against God's people and against God's work, whether it's verbal insults, physical harm, emotional discouragement. We respond to those things with both prayer and protection, trusting God's sovereignty and also being involved in our human responsibility. But the question is, what does that look like and how does that actually play out in our lives? So we're going to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 4, Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, their plan, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, that's armor, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, and held his weapon with the other. 
and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Let's stop right there for a moment. So what we see happening here, by the way, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this part of the passage. And so we'll read the rest of the passage, and we'll kind of have two additional uh, short points at the end. But the bulk of our time we're going to spend right here in these few verses. Because we see in verse 15, the enemy's plot relied on surprise more than strength. And so once the word got out that these enemies were plotting to infiltrate the city of Jerusalem, they scurried back to their holes, and then God's people go back to work on the wall. And as they go back to work, that doesn't mean that they let their guard down. But instead, the question that they're asking is, should they focus more on the rebuilding or on the defending? And in verse 16, we see that from that day forward, half the people are doing construction. Half the people are carrying weapons on guard duty. And so it's very interesting here. And what I want you to see is it's not just that, okay, some people do the building and some people do the defending of the work of God. Oftentimes it's both. Because in verse 17, those who were kind of carrying the load, moving the materials from one construction site to another construction site, they had to work with one hand and then hold the weapon with your other hand. And in verse 18, even the people who were building the wall, it says, uh, Maybe they had both their hands occupied with the work, but they carried a sword strapped to their side. And so the question is, what does that mean for us? Many of you know who Charles Spurgeon is. If you don't know, let me give you a little bit of background. He's often known as the Prince of Preachers. He is a very uh, well-known preacher. And in 1854, he started pastoring when he was 19 years old. I would, not even tr- I would never trust myself at 19 years old to, to manage a church. Uh, much, I could barely manage my life, much less a church. But he, at starting age 19, he grew the largest church in London at that time. In fact, at its most uh, grand, he was preaching to, peop- to sizes of crowds of over 6,000 and one time even 23,000 before there was ever such thing as a mega church. He wrote 140 books. He preached over 3,600 sermons that were so popular that during his time, because they didn't have TV or social media or, or music, uh, so, so this hearing a good order was a big deal. They were so popular that millions of copies of his sermons were sold. People would buy copies of his sermon, and that would be like their entertainment. I know you're thinking like, wow, <laughs> old times really sounds really boring. But it was so fascinating to see how much influence God gave him. He grew to be internationally recognized. But with fame also came things like contending with criticism and spiritual oppression for most of his life in ministry. So how does he respond to that? He started his own publication inspired by this passage in Nehemiah chapter 4, which when we read it, it seems like this is just a boring passage about a building project, but it holds immense spiritual truth from God about how to deal with life. And the title of his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. That's that picture up there. Now, for those of you... uh, uh, trowel, maybe you are a single guy, unmarried, uh, and don't know much about, not very handy. Uh, that's, you might mistake that for a cake cutter or maybe a spatula that you flip eggs with. That's not what that is. It's for construction. You use it to uh, lay brick and mortar to build up a wall. The sword is obvious. It's a weapon. And the way it works is that these two things work together in this passage and in Charles Spurgeon's magazine. That the trowel you use to build, but the point of Nehemiah is that you also need to protect. And so the big idea from the passage this morning is that what we build for God, we must also defend for God. Not in a cruel way or not in an aggressive way, but we need to pick up our sword and our trowel. Otherwise, everything that we've worked so hard for 
can be stolen, taken, broken, or destroyed. And so the first question I want you to be wrestling with this morning is, what has God called you to build? Are you building and restoring your relationship with Jesus? Perhaps you're being called to build or restore your relationship with a brother or sister in Christ or in your marriage with your children, with your grandchildren. Perhaps God is calling you to build and work on your career or to restore things in your ministry after this past two years of where things have been lying fallow for some time. And what we see is that, like the people in this passage, so much of our life is trowel work. You do your job, you love your spouse, you pay your bills, you raise your kids, you're walking with Jesus, you're serving people with the gospel. But the problem is that in the process of building things or rebuilding things, that sin and sinful people and Satan and spiritual resistance are real. And they work against everything that Jesus is trying to build in us and through us. So let's talk practically. What does this look like for us? At church, a lot of what we focus on is trial work, how to build your life in Christ, how to build your marriage in Christ, how to build your work for Jesus, how to serve the community. But your life in Christ is not only just keeping your head down, focusing on your work. Uh, you need to look up sometimes and discern who or what is a potential danger that could undermine the work and the glory of God in your life. So as we build our life in Christ, uh, we encounter sin and Satan and spiritual attacks. And what Satan does is he doesn't want you to know the truth. He wants you to believe lies. Satan doesn't want you to have freedom in Christ. He wants you to be a slave to sin. He doesn't want you to have joy and peace. He wants you to experience confusion and depression. And some of us, we're experiencing spiritual attacks right now, but we are not aware of it. And so Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, tells us what Satan is. It says in Revelation 12, 10, that he is an accuser of the children of God. Day and night, he accuses us. And so here's how you recognize him. You recognize by an inner voice that speaks insidious accusations into your hearts. Those thoughts that come, and you don't know where it comes from, but it says things that are very negative. You're a failure. You'll never change. Your past is so bad that you will never escape it. Your future is so bleak that you'll never make it. You should kill yourself. Those are demonic accusations. Sometimes we think that's just our own thoughts, but those negative, hideous accusations attack our minds and our hearts, and that's what Satan does. He lies and accuses us. Satan is a liar, John chapter 8, verse 44 says, and what happens is if you believe the lies, it will destroy your life, and so what we need to do is to combat lies with truth. And so Jesus says in John 17, 17, that we are sanctified by the truth. That means to be made holy and healthy and more like Jesus. We're sanctified by the truth and that the word of God is truth. So in other words, we defend ourselves against the lies and the accusations of the enemy with truth from scripture. What does Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 say about scripture? That it is a sword. Right? It is the sword that you use to, for spiritual battle the same way that a blade is used for physical battle. And so when Satan whispers lies into your mind, then you respond with the truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
that you are not condemned, even though this, the enemy is completely accusing you and condemning you, but before Jesus, because of what he's done at the cross, I am no longer condemned. You read all of Romans 8, come to the end of the passage in verses 37 through 38, that 39, excuse me, that you are loved, that there's nothing that you have done that can uh, separate you, that will separate you, nothing that you can do or will do that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that there's no sin that you commit or, or think to commit that God cannot forgive or won't forgive through the substitute payment of Jesus' death on a cross. And so we take this sword of Scripture, we pray on it, we dwell on it, and we use it to cut through the enemy's lies. That is not what God says about me. That is not the truth about my situation. The Bible says that I'm loved by God, Romans 5.8, that I'm made in his image and valuable, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that he paid for all of my sin, not just some of my sin, not just the easy sins, all of it, that I am a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, and that I, the old has gone, the new has come, and that he is constantly renewing me. So as we allow the sword of the scripture to cut through these lies, I don't have to believe Satan's lies. I don't have to receive accusation. I don't have to live under condemnation because instead we have Jesus. So as we're continuing to build and rebuild our lives in Jesus, we come under attack, we fight through it, with the sword of the word of God. And as we build our relationships and restore our relationships, where is Satan sowing division and deception and destruction in your, in your life and maybe in your friendships? And for some of us, we're thinking, well, that's not Satan. It's just that that other guy's a jerk, right? That, but, and that may be true at times, but it's not true all the time. You see, one of Satan's lies to you is that it is okay to despise that brother or that sister in Christ if they deserve it. Maybe they're... There's somebody who's done something wrong to you. And, and truthfully, they need to repent. But that I can despise them. And what Jesus says, his truth is that in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved you? Sacrificially, generously, graciously. And he continues on that the mark of his disciples, his followers, those who love him, is by our love for one another. Even that guy, Yes, even that guy. Now, listen to me carefully, because I don't want you to misunderstand. What God and the Bible and I, we're not saying, let toxic people and let toxic behaviors into your life. We talked about this, right? That, that the whole point of Nehemiah 4 is about praying and protecting the work and the people of God. So we don't let toxicity come into our lives. That's not grace, that's folly. Remember we talked about that last time? But the truth of Scripture also says in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, that there's a godly process that we go through. That we don't just, okay, uh, when somebody hurts us or sins against us, we kick them to the curb and that's it, right? But there's this godly process that we go through in Matthew 18 of confrontation and restoration for all who follow Jesus, and that's part of how we follow Jesus. Have you done that? Or have you bought into the lies? Or are you cutting through them with the sword and the word of God in Matthew 18? Let's talk about marriage. We often do the trowel work of building up our memories together, our vacations, uh, maybe uh, going on dates together and serving together, serving the Lord together. Uh, you do the trowel work, but are you doing the sword work of protecting your marriage? What does that look like? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33 encourages us or commands us to defend our marriages by loving our wives, respecting and honoring our husbands. And I know many of you know that verse. 
But how do we do that? What does it actually look like to defend our marriages that way? Let's get very practical. Husbands, let me speak to you for a moment. You need to understand that loving your wife includes that your wife needs intimacy. Now, some of you are like, oh yeah, but that's not, we're not just talking about physical intimacy. We're talking about does she feel known by you? That's what the kind of intimacy that they talk about in the Bible. Does she feel known? Do you know her past and her present? Do you know her hopes and her dreams and her fears? So let me give you an example. So when my wife, Melissa, when she shares her heart with me, I'll tell you the truth, I often fail this test. It's easy for me to be dismissive or defensive if it's something I don't agree with, to be correcting instead of connecting with her. And husbands, I want to tell you, when you are listening to your wife, when you are trying to know them, make them feel known, you don't have to agree with everything that your wife says, but the question is, does she feel heard? Does she feel understood? And that even what she shares with you, even if you don't agree, does she feel accepted and appreciated? Does she feel known? Because that's how she feels close. And I'm telling you, this is one of the mo most important keys for your wife to feel loved. Giving her intimacy, making her feel known. Wives, let's flip it, the script. What your husbands need from you I know like intimacy, intimacy sounds great. Husbands kind of respond to that yes and no. But what they really need most from you is encouragement. What I mean by that is, you know, sometimes uh, wives, we may feel, well, you know, I'm not sure that my, my husband's actions or his character merits, you know, encouraging words. Like it's hard for me to find something uh, encouraging to say to that person. And what I want to tell you is that, you know, men won't admit this, but so many men are the product of the level of encouragement that they get from their wives. What I mean is that when you regularly pour encouraging words and support into them, you may feel they may not deserve it at the time, but men rise to that occasion. What I mean is as you pour that grace and of encouragement into them, they, they, it helps them to float to the top and they become the man of God that you wish that they were or that you long for them to be and that God intends to, for them to be. Husbands, love your wives with intimacy. Are they known by you? Do they feel loved and appreciated and accepted? Wives, encourage your husbands and watch them rise to the occasion, to the surface, to become the man of God that you want them to be. And what I want to warn you with is, if you leave your marriage undefended, what happens? And someone else shows up at work or at the gym who shows some interest and is intrigued by your husband or wife. They're, they're the ones that come in and they're willing give attention and intimacy or encouragement to that wife, to that husband that they're starving for. And by doing so, we've allowed them to invade an area that we should have been defending in the first place. What if it's too late? What if the walls of my marriage have been breached by sin and conflict and failure? That's rough, right? Because we know that sin leads to what? We talked about this last year in James chapter 1, verse 15. Sin leads to what? Death, death of trust, death of, death of intimacy and death of joy, death of marriages. But here's the good news. That if you understand the person and work of Jesus, sin does not have to lead to death. Instead, it can lead to Jesus. 
that we understand that Jesus already died for all of our sins, so we don't need to kill each other or kill the marriage. We don't need to punish the other person with shame or distance or bitterness. That when Jesus is in the marriage, one per- that person can repent. And so Jesus can take the sin out of the marriage. And with Jesus in the marriage, we can forgive, just as Jesus has forgiven us so much. And so that we're able to share this lifelong journey of growing in intimacy with a wife, in encouragement with a husband, in maturity with Jesus together. Do the sword work, not just the trowel work. Now, the people of Jerusalem were on guard and on the walls, and I think about when we think about our own lives, you know, can I be hypervigilant like that all the time? It's not possible as a person to stay on guard all the time. And so what we're going to see in the rest of the passage here is Nehemiah wisely sets up a system. Picking up in the second half of verse 18, The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, Nehemiah. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out, which is a really long time. So in verse 18, Nehemiah, he keeps this guy on alarm duty. And in verse 19 through 20, he explains why. He, he grabs all the leaders and all the workers. Uh, there's a lot of work for you guys to do. And so it's hard to keep your eye on the enemy. This is a really long wall. And so it's hard to see if someone's in trouble. So whenever and wherever you hear this guy blow the trumpet, rally to him there with your sword ready. Now he calls people to to, to gather and defend each other, but as they fight, to also remember our God fights for us. In other words, our mentality is we defend, but God defeats our enemies. Amen? And so in verse 21, we see them relying on God, ready to defend, reinvigorated to continue their work instead of being controlled by fear. And so when you and I, when we're tired and when we're busy, when it's hard to stay on guard, we need to remember that uh, Yes, if I try to do it by myself, I will never be able to keep my eyes open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I'm not alone. This passage reminds us to remember that we are part of a community, part of a family in Christ. And so we, do, we practice that by being ready to defend one another as the body of Christ when someone sounds the alarm. So I think about it this way. Um, when I go to the beach with my family, I, I love to build sandcastles, and I make my kids help me. But my youngest one, uh, Chili, uh, Crimson, he's two years old. We call him Chili. And so he doesn't do much, but he, he can decorate the, the castle with shells and stick, sticks that he finds and dirty feathers, like those you know pigeon feathers or seagull feathers, ugh, filthy, from filthy birds. But it's, he loves it, so that, which is fine. Now, there's one time, uh, we were on vacation this past summer in Hawaii for a few days, and we're building on the beach, and uh, my, my little guy is, is sticking shells and stuff all in the sandcastle, and then this older boy just came walking along, you know, not mean or anything, but just trotting along, and he sees the shells, and he starts plucking them off of the castle um, for his own collection, because he's trying to collect his own seashells. And now, some of you know my son. There's a reason why we call him chili. He's a red-hot chili pepper if you violate his personal space or his personal property. But this other boy, he's bigger. And so my, my little guy, uh, he doesn't say anything. He turns towards his daddy. 
And you can see he starts getting those big puppy dog eyes, you know, the kind that you can't resist. And, and then he starts wailing. He's sounding the alarm. He's, he's the alarm. He's blowing the trumpet. And so the question is, how do I react in that moment, right? Pray, God, help me to be firm, but to be kind. Help me to be a good example in front of my kids. And I tell this bigger boy, you see this little guy over here? He's using the shells to decorate his castle, and so you need to go find your own somewhere else, right? Now, what I don't say to Chili is that, oh, that is so sad what you are going through. I will pray for you without protecting you, but I'll pray for you. But I'm kind of busy, I'm kind of tired, and so this is a good life lesson, this is a good life moment for you to, to, to learn to de depend on God and defend for yourself. That's not what I do, right? But oftentimes, that is how we treat other people in the body of Christ when the alarm sounds. Oh, so sad, too bad. I'll pray for you, but not protect you. I'm busy, I'm tired, I got my own stuff going on. And when 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says to us that as an interdependent parts of a body of Christ together, if one part suffers, we all suffer with it. And so the people in Jerusalem at that time, if one person and one part of the wall is attacked, they're all affected. And so we need to be attentive and defend one another. And so as other people are building or rebuilding their lives to overcome anxiety or addictions, as somebody is working on trying to save their marriage, as someone is sounding the alarm to protect their children or to bring a neighbor to Jesus, they're going to come under withering attack from our true enemy, the evil one. And so I want you to think about who is that person who's sounding, a personal, sounding an alarm and are you listening? How do you need to rally to defend them? Just practice being a body of Christ that rallies around each other. Let's wrap up the passage. Verse 22, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So in verse 22, we see that uh, Nehemiah realizes they need to stay on high alert. And so he huddles everyone together and says, listen, guys, I know after a long day that you want to return home, you want to retire to the safety and security of your suburbs, but the danger is not over. Let's not leave Jerusalem undefended. Stay the night in the city. Otherwise, our city, and our lives that we worked so hard to rebuild can be taken and broken and destroyed. And in verse 23, he goes on, you know, I'm not just asking other people to make that sacrifice because we learned last time that generals lead from the back, right? But shepherds lead from where? From the front, by their example. And so he does it himself, including his entire posse of servants and soldiers that we met in chapter 2, verse 9. They all stay overnight in the city. He even has them keep their work clothes on and keep their sword at their side while they're sleeping because he wants to be ready to respond to the threats if they come in the middle of the night. Now, what it's not saying here is that we let fear and fighting control us so that we don't pay attention to our work or we don't rest at night because we see the workers stayed in Jerusalem, but they did sleep. But what it is saying is don't be absent or unarmed, leaving you unready for the attack that might come. Because I want you to think about it. When do enemies tend to attack? When we're absent, when we're apathetic, when we're inattentive in our life with Jesus, right? When we're kind of absent-minded about our life or when we're absent in our families or absent in our ministries, when we're too wrapped up in our own 
comforts when we're far from the will and the work of God because when we are most distracted is when we're most vulnerable. Don't be caught asleep unarmed. And if you end up unarmed and unready to face the battle, then you're going to be in big trouble. So keep your sword sharp. Keep your sword close. Let me ask you, what has God called you to build but you've left undefended? Where are you ending up being absent and unarmed and unready in your life, in your spiritual life? Are you being absent with Jesus and apathetic? Maybe in your school life or in your financial life, are you absent and unarmed? Perhaps in your family, if you have kids or you want to have kids, you do the trial work of loving your kids, disciplining them, feeding them, praying for them, reading the Bible with them, tucking them in bed at night, but you also have to do the sword work. Don't neglect to be present to protect your kids. According to the Department of Justice, uh, one statistic they have is that roughly one in five uh, people in America will be sexually abused in their lifetime. The majority, when they were children, is when that happens. And not by a stranger, but by someone like an uncle or a coach, but someone they know. So parents or aspiring parents, are you present? Are you protected? As a pastor, the man's of ministry often leave me with little time or bandwidth uh, at the end of the day, but I am determined not to be an absent father. And so this past Friday after school, I took my five-year-old daughter, uh, Violet, on a date, a daddy-daughter date. And uh, she was so excited that daddy got dressed up, and so she uh, came and, and, and said to mom, help me, and mommy helped pick a nice dress for her, helped her do her hair, uh, wear nice shoes, and, and she got very excited, and so I took her out. Uh, we went to the ice creamery in, in Castro Valley, and uh, as I'm taking her out, I escort her on my arm, I open the doors for her, I pull out her chair, I ask her things about her friends, because I want to know, especially if the boys in her life, right? I ask about her friendships. I ask about, uh, we talk about My Little Pony, uh, because I don't know much about that. We talk about her fears. Um, we talk about what's hard at, her, at, at school for her, and what, what would Jesus uh, be able to want you to do there. Um, and I do all these things because I don't want her to hear for the first time, you look beautiful, to be mesmerized by a boy who doesn't know how to treat a woman. And so when that day comes, I've got that guy beaten by a decade. I've been working on her for like the, you know, 10 years before he already meets her, already teaching her what she should expect, that you are worthy to be known and cherished, that you are worthy to be respected and protected, that a boy has to treat you as good as daddy does, or else they're not worth your attention and devotion. They also have to pay, pass an interview with me first. That goes, that's true for all my kids, though. Teach them, train them, defend them. Like Nehemiah, are you ready to respond to the threats in a godly way? Faithful followers of Jesus know that what we build with God, for God, we must also defend for God. That we can't ignore threats or avoid threats. They're going to come from false teachers, from predators, from spiritual attacks in our lives. And we need to be prayerful and practic practical in how we defend it. So I implore you, defend your walk with Jesus. Defend your marriage and your family and your ministry. 
Defend the work that God is doing through the church. Defend it with prayer and with scripture, with the truth from God. Defend by walking with people in community where we experience help and hope and support and accountability and transparency. Defend it by being present and prepared, not absent and armed for the church and for your children. So I want to encourage you uh, as a church, I'm so encouraged by you about what Jesus has been doing through you and continues to do through you as a church. And I ask you to consider, consider where is God calling you to pick up the trowel? To build the goodness of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus into your life, into your family, into your ministry, into your community. And how is God calling you to pick up a sword? Are you willing to defend uh, what God is building through you against attacks and assaults of the evil one. And my prayer for you is may you have the courage and the knowledge to pick up your trowel to build and pick up your sword to defend. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the word this morning. We ask that you would uh, really be practical and specific in our hearts about areas of our lives that you've called us to build and areas that you call us to defend. And help us to do both of those things. And so right now we, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We ask that you would move in a way that gives us courage. And sometimes it's easier to ignore problems. Give us knowledge, especially through your word, about how to handle things and defend things. We ask most of all that Jesus would cover us in his grace, in his power, in his life, in his transformation. Lead us, O oh Lord, in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. At this time, we're going to continue worshiping through the act of celebrating communion together. And so what we invite you right now is spend some time reflecting, just as I prayed for you, that maybe you would spend some time praying through how is God speaking into your life about things you need to build, things you need to defend. And before you start your time of prayer and reflection, if you are a baptized Christian, we invite you to come forth and take up uh, the bread and the cup. They are a sealed little package that has both. Um, but we want you to come forward and receive it before you start reflecting because we want everyone who wants to take communion today to have that opportunity. So for those of you who are baptized believers, come forward if you're ready just and grab one of those and go back to your seat. You can spend some time praying and reflecting. And for those of you who are not yet uh, followers of Jesus, have not uh, uh, received him and obeyed him through baptism yet, then we just ask that you would enjoy the worship time. But for all of us, let's reflect on what God is calling us to build and defend for the glory of Jesus and the good of all. Amen.